Okay, everybody, hope, hope everybody's well. Um, before we continue our regular topic, I'd like to digress a little bit, tell you something very, very interesting that's actually relevant to the secular date and the Christian holiday that's being celebrated tonight, tomorrow. And this is connected to the 10th of Tevesh. Maybe you went over this a little bit. Uh, the 10th of Tevesh, which we fasted on Friday, very unusual to have a tainus on Friday, but it's brought down in halacha that there were tzaddikim who fasted for three days in a row, although they ate at night. They fasted the 8th of Tevez, they fasted the 9th of Tevez, they fasted the 10th of Tevez. But these are three different tragedies. They're not related. The 10th of Tevez, which of course is the mandatory fast, uh, that is the date that King Nebuchadnezzar began his siege against Jerusalem which culminated three years later in the destruction of the first temple. So it was the beginning of the siege. That's the 10th of Tevez. And that's only connected to the Bayes Rishon. It is not connected to the Bayes Shani. Unlike Tishabav, where the 9th of Av is a date for both the first temple and the second temple, Asar of is only a relevant date for the first temple. There is a tradition, however, that Asar of is also connected to the day of Mechiras Yosef. In other words, each of the fast days is rooted in an earlier Aveira. So the 17th, 17th of Tammuz is rooted in the Chet Ha'edel. Tishabav is rooted in the sin of the spies. Tzom Gedalia, the assassination of Gedalia, many say occurred on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah was the biggie. The sin of the Eitz Hadas occurred on Rosh Hashanah. And the sin of Asara B'Teves was Mechiras Yosef. So you have all the big Averis represented as the precursors for the Beis Hamikdash tragedies. Okay, now what happened on the 8th of Teves? Right, the 10th of Teves, the Buchadnezzar began the siege against Yerushalayim. So the 8th of Teves is something much later. It happened during the second Beis Hamikdash. And this is when the Torah was completed in Greek by 70 elders. Uh, there was a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, and the king of that community was Talmai. In, he, in English, you spell it P-T-O-L-M-E-Y, Talmai HaMelech. There were many Talmais, actually, but this is one of the Talmais. And Talmai had a library, like the Library of Congress, in which every book in the, in the known ancient world he wanted to have a copy of. There weren't, that, there weren't that many books in those days, not like today, but he wanted every book. So he wanted a copy of the Torah, and he wanted the Torah to be translated in Greek. So he took 72 elders, these are Chachamim. He put them in separate rooms, and he directed them to translate the Torah into Greek. And, miraculously, all 72 came up with the same translation including certain deviations. They actually deviated from the text for certain reasons. I'll give you two examples of deviations. One deviation are the first three words of the Torah. The first three words of the Torah say, Bereshis, the beginning, Bara Lokim created God. Now, if you read it hyper-literally, Bereshis Bara Lokim, you could actually read it to mean, the beginning created God. Meaning God was created by something called the beginning. Now, of course, that's not what the Torah means. 
and therefore they reversed the order, God created the beginning. God created the beginning of time. Another example was that Talmai's wife, the queen, her Greek name was the Greek word for rabbit. I think it's Bernice, actually. The word Bernice means, means rabbit. Now, the Torah says, in Hebrew, that's Arneves, and the Torah says specifically when it lists the impure animals that you can't eat, it says, the Arneves is impure. In Greek, that would have said, whatever the Greek words would be, Bernice is impure. So that would have insulted the queen. So instead of using the word rabbit in Greece, in Greek, they used a longer term, the animal that dwells among the rocks or, or whatever it would be. So it was a miracle that they were machaven with Ruach HaKodesh to change what needed to be changed and otherwise come up with the exact. Now we actually have this word. This is called the Septuagint, which is actually Greek for the translation of the 70. Such a work is there. Now, interestingly enough, the Septuagint never became part, even though it was done by the Chachamim, by some Chachamim, it never became part of our Messiah. You know, we have Targum Unkelis, we have other translations. The Targum Ashivim, as it's called, had an enormous impact on Christianity, meaning a lot of the early Christians' knowledge of the Torah came through the Septuagint, but it really did not have a Messiah in Am Yisrael. And what's interesting is the tradition was it was finished on the 8th of Teves, and the Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael declared a fast day on the day that this translation was completed. Now it's interesting that Philo of Alexandria, who was a Jewish philosopher who lived in Alexandria, he writes that the Jews of Alexandria celebrated the day that the Septuagint was finished. It was like their art scroll or whatever, it was their translation. So here's the question. The question is, why would the completion of the Torah into Greek be considered a tragedy? What, 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 I mean, we don't fast because, you know, we don't have extra fast days, but there were, there were tzaddikim who fasted on the end of Teves because of the tragedy of translating the Torah into Greek. What is so tragic about it? I mean, we translate the Torah into English, many, many languages. Is there something wrong with Greek or is there something wrong with translation? What, what is the issue? Yeah. It enabled Christianity to develop. Right, so there are actually three different reasons you can give. One reason was it was a real concern. Maybe it was good for Jews who didn't know Hebrew. The Baruch Hashem, they have a crutch, whatever it would be. But it made the Torah available to non-Jews. And to have the Torah available to non-Jews means they could introduce distortion, falsification. Uh, they could claim that, you know, Jesus is alluded to in Psukim and, and the like. So Chazal saw this as a tragedy because the Torah should not be made overly accessible to non-Jewish populations who may distort it. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that although for Jews who don't know Hebrew, translations are a real bracha. I mean, we're grateful that we have, you know, these things. Or whatever, I mean, I don't know Chabad has their own system of translation, but whatever it is, to make the Torah accessible. We have uh, Tanya, we have Mamarim, we have Lakute Torah, we have Torah. These are Swarim that one wouldn't have imagined in a thousand years would be translated in English. And Baruch Hashem, so now people can connect to them. So on one hand, it's a wonderful thing 
But on the other hand, it's also a sad thing. It's like crutches. You know, are we happy that there are crutches in the world? For sure we are. If there wouldn't be crutches, what would a person do with broken legs? But we're also sad that there are legs that are broken that need crutches. You're happy and you're sad. Same thing. Baruch Hashem, we have translations for people who need it. But we're sad that people needed it. We're sad that people were not connected enough to Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, that they would be able to understand it on their own. Because remember, every translation is incomplete because Lashon HaKodesh, there are so many nuances. When you translate, you're picking, you're picking something. You can't pick up the 70 faces of the Torah in the translation. You pick up one face of the Torah in the translation. There's so much that you're going to be missing. So that's the second reason. The third reason is a little more subtle. And that is that these Chachamim are Chachamim. They are legitimate Chachamim. But they introduced certain distortions, certain changes. Didn't change halach or anything, but they put certain stylistic changes in order that there shouldn't be a backlash. But that's a very, very, very dangerous thing to do because once you start introducing what you think are innocent little changes, then chas v'shalom, that opens the door. You know, a person might translate the Torah and say, hmm, I don't like this pasuk about, uh, you know, no gays, no, no male homosexuality, let's take that one out. So the Chachamim were crying, or they fasted, because they saw in the precedent of deviation the seeds of very, very dangerous techniques. So that was the eighth of Tevis. Now keep in mind that this eighth of Tevis event is way after the tenth of Tevis. The tenth of Tevis was before the destruction of the first Beisamikdash. The eighth of Tevis event is during the second Beisamikdash. Okay, so just because it's the eighth doesn't mean it was earlier. It was a later event. Okay. What happened on the ninth of Tevis? So here we have the amazing statements of Chazal. The ninth of Teves was also a fast day, but the Chachamim didn't want to tell you why. Well, that, that I think raises your curiosity quite a lot. They didn't want to tell you why, but just take it on faith. If you're a righteous person, you fast on the ninth of Teves. You know, we don't anyway, but, but theoretically it was a tainus for the righteous. That would have been thir- last Thursday. What is it? So in the Selichais of Asara B'Teves, which mentions 8th, 9th, and 10th, it says the 9th of Teves was the yard site, the anniversary of the death of Ezra. Now who is Ezra? Ezra was very, very great. Ezra was the spiritual leader of Am Yisrael at the time of the building of the second temple, or right after the building of the second temple. In fact, there's a book of Tanakh, the book of Ezra. Ezra was a calling. The Gemara says Ezra was so great that if Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have gotten the Torah from Hashem, Ezra was worthy to be Makabel the Torah for Am Yisrael. So Ezra was phenomenally righteous, and he was the head and the founder of the Anshe Knesset Sagdola, the men of the great assembly that 
made so many enactments to restore religious life after the Babylonian exile. In fact, they were the authors of our davening. Shimona Esrei, the Brachos of Shema, the authors of the Siddur, were essentially the Anshei and of course, some of the Siddur is from Tehillim, but they are the ones that put it all together. So because Ezra is like the second Moshe Rabbeinu, the same way some Sadiqim fast on the seventh of Adar, which is Moshe Rabbeinu's Yorzeit, some Sadiqim fasted on the ninth of Teves, which was Ezra's Yorzeit. Now, that's wonderful, but the problem is, why is that a reason to hide? I mean, the, the, the source actually says, they don't want to tell you the reason. If it's just Ezra's Yorzeit, that's a perfectly good reason to give. No reason to hide it. So because of this, there are commentaries that say there's a much more hidden reason for the ninth of Tebes, and the Chachamim didn't want to publicize it. Once you hear the reason, you'll understand why the Chachamim didn't want to publicize it. The Chachamim had a tradition. Well, I'll give you two Christian reasons. But reason number one is the Chachamim had a tradition that the ninth of Tebes was the birthday of Yeshu, of Yashka, the birthday of Jesus. And uh, because of all of the, Jesus, of course, was Jewish. Everybody knows that. He absolutely was Jewish, but he became a false prophet and a false Mashiach and everything else. Uh, and uh, by founding this religion of Christianity, there's untold suffering against the Jewish people over years and years and years. Happens to be now where we're, we're suffering more with Muslims, but for most of our history, it was Christianity that was our great oppressor. Uh, and therefore, they actually decreed a fast day on the birth of Yashka. Now, this actually makes sense. Now, again, December 25th is, you know, we don't even know if that was right in terms of the secular day, but it's around the same time, right? The 9th of Teves, that year, whatever year he was born, uh, was his birthday. So we fast on his birthday. So, this is so strange. <laughs> I shouldn't say it this way. Uh, do Jews commemorate Christmas? Yes, Jews do commemorate Christmas by fasting on the day of his birth, which is not December 25th, but it's defined as the, as the 9th of Teves, right? So we commemorate it in our own way, uh, as it were. Now, you understand, obviously, why the Chachamim wouldn't want to reveal that reason, because if it ever became public, maybe not today so much, but certainly at times of great persecution against Jews, if it became public that Jews are fasting on the day of Jesus' birth, by the way, Jesus, and I know people, you might be a little uneasy when I'm saying Jesus, let me just make a very simple point. Uh, Jesus is simply the Greek for the name Yeshua, which is a contraction of Yehoshua. So his name happened to be Yehoshua, which got abbreviated Yeshua, and Jesus is just Greek. So, for example, if you looked at Yehoshua ben Nun, he is called Jesus ben Nun. So there's nothing sinister or forbidden in saying the word Jesus, although we often say Yashka or whatever, or Yeshu. Uh, however, the second word, Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, one should never refer to Yashka with that term because the word Christ is Greek for the word Mashiach. So when a person says JC, the C is, the J is not the problem. 
It is the sea that's the problem, right? One should never refer to him. That's why some people, I should have been machmer myself, some people will not say the name of the December 25th holiday because that incorporates the C-H, right, R-I-S-T. Okay, so remember, so there's nothing wrong with Jesus. So Jesus is just a name, and it's Greek for Yehoshua. In fact, every Yehoshua, every Yehoshua in, in Tanakh in Greek will be Jesus. Jesus bin Nun, right? So, yeah. Um, but they're called Christians. Say again? They're called Christians. So, yeah, but I, but I guess that's okay because we refer to, uh, even in the Chumash, when we refer to Ovdei Avodah we, we call them Baal worshippers, Asher. In other words, Christians are those who worship, you know, the fa- false Mashiach. So, so that, that's, that's okay to say. Okay. Now, there is another Christian reference, though, that's, that's very, very strange. And this depends on an amazing medrash that maybe you heard, maybe, maybe not. That is, that the mystery of the ninth of Teves is not that Yashka was born that day, but it is the Yortzites. Now, you know, you fast on Yortzites of righteous people. It is the Yortzite of a man called Shimon Kippa. And on the ninth of Teves, we want to fast to remember the neshama of Shimon Kippa. Who on earth is Shimon Kippa? So here's the thing. The word Kippa in Aramaic, in Gemara language, actually means rock. So Shimon Kippa is Simon Peter. Peter in Greek means rock, like Petra. Who is Simon Peter? Simon Peter was Yashka's closest student. His closest apostle. Now, of course, he was Jewish, just like Yashka was Jewish. His name was Shimon. And Yashka said to him, you are my rock. I, I rely on you for everything. So he became Simon Peter. Shimon Kippa equals Simon Peter. And eventually he got known as Peter. Uh, he lived in Eretz Yisrael. But after Yashka died, uh, Peter went to Rome. He became the first bishop of Rome, which means he is the first pope. Simon Peter is the first pope. He was considered to be the successor, the Yoresh of Yashka. So, why on earth would I mourn his death by fasting on his yard site? Remember, this is not fasting on his birth. This is fasting on his yard site. Why, why is that? So, listen to this story. This is a wild, wild story. This is brought down in a medrash. But it's important for you to understand that the word medrash does not always carry the same level of authority. There are what you might call the accepted official midrashim of our Chachamim. And they are considered to be part of the oral law that is sacred and holy. And this would include things like, you know, the, med- the Medrash Rabbah, the Medrash Tanchuma, the Medrash Pesikta, Yalkut Shimoni. These are, the, when we say, these are the midrashim. And these midrashim are holy. Now again, we can have a whole other share about this. That doesn't mean every medrash is supposed to be literal. Midrashim often have symbolic meanings, they have allegorical meanings, meaning the holiness of a medrash is not the same as the literalness of a medrash. So if you're going to ask me, 
are you obligated to believe, let's say, that Esther, that Vashti got a tail, that she didn't go to Achishverosh because Vashti got a tail? The answer is there are midrashim that have symbolic meaning, but that's a separate discussion. In other words, they're true, but sometimes they're spiritually true. They're not always meant to be literal. That's a separate thing. But those are midrashim that are sacred, that are holy, that are part of Torah, that have very, very deep spiritual ideas. Now, in the Middle Ages, however, there were other compositions from a later time that we don't even know who wrote them exactly, and we're not even sure what they're based on. Now, commentaries do bring them sometimes. In fact, a lot of the stories of Hanukkah, a lot of the stories of Hanukkah are based on these later midrashim, not the authoritative midrashim. So they may be reliable, maybe they're not reliable. We're not sure. But these were like traditions that existed in some Jewish communities. So just because something is called a midrash does not always mean it is given the authority of a midrash. So the Medrash I'm going to tell you is not in the official Midrashim. It is in what you might call the unofficial Midrashim. And again, that, does, that doesn't mean it's false either. That doesn't mean it's false, but it means that we don't know. And here is the story. The early Christians were all Jews, right? This is obvious. Yashka was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. And all of the apostles were Jews. Now, what that meant was the following. What that meant was they didn't worship Yashka as a god, but they thought he was a prophet, they thought he was Mashiach. And where did a Christian, an early Jewish person who was a Christian uh, pray? They didn't pray in churches, they prayed in shows. They went to Beis Knesset. It's similar to today when you have Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews. Sometimes you can have a guy or a woman. The guy could be wearing tzitzes, the guy could be wearing payas, the guy could have a beard. Uh, the woman will have her hair covered. They'll look totally from. And they'll make kiddish and do everything. They happen to believe in Jesus. Well, in the early years of Christianity, that exactly was the problem. There were Jews who believed in Yashka for whatever reason. And they were intermingled in the Jewish community. Now, this created a tremendous danger. Because that meant that you had all of these believers in this other religion who were mixed with religious Jews and could influence them and influence their children. So Shimon Kippa was a religious Jew. And listen to his idea. He proposed to the Sanhedrin that, listen, I will make myself leader of the Christians and I will make them a separate religion to separate them from the Jewish people. And in that way, the Jewish people will not be influenced by Christianity. He said, I know I will never be able to be part of Am Yisrael again, but I'm doing this in order to save Am Yisrael from getting assimilated or getting converted by Christianity. And thus, this Medrash says that Shimon Kippa externally became a Christian, a follower of Yashka, Externally, he became a leader of the church. He became the pope, the first pope. Bishop of Rome is the pope. And the whole kavana was that Christianity should no longer be within Judaism. It should be a whole separate thing. So no Jew is going to go after Christianity because it's a separate religion. 
And the Medrash says, in private, Shimon Kippa continued to do mitzvahs. Privately. He wore tefillin, he daven, privately. Publicly, he was not a Jew at all. He repudiated, I mean, people knew he was born a Jew, but he repudiated his Jewish status. And since his kavanah was totally l'shem shamayim, he sacrificed his Jewish life so that Am Yisrael should not be affected by Christianity. The Chachamim wanted to memorialize his yartzeit, but they didn't want to tell people that they're doing it for this Christian guy, because people wouldn't understand it. But that, in fact, is it, the yartzeit of Shimon Kippa. Now, to make it even more crazy, Shimon Kippa had a request that he said he wrote a prayer and he asked if Klal Yisrael could say this prayer and have in mind to elevate his neshama. And the prayer that this medrash says he wrote is the prayer of Nishmas. Now, do you know the prayer of Nishmas? Nishmas is a very, very beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that we recite only on Shabbos and on holidays, Yom Yom Tovim. And many people say Nishmas is a segula generally, that if you're going through difficult times or you want the Yeshua, so you might recite Nishmas every day. According to this medrash, the author of Nishmas is none other than Simon Peter, uh, Shimon Kippa. This was the gift he wanted to give to the Jewish people as a farewell gift when he cut his relationship off. Now, as I say, uh, this is not uh, an official medrash, and this medrash may not be true, may not be true. And as if, you, if you tell me you don't believe it, you're allowed not to believe this. And I, again, I don't know if I believe it either. Uh, but it is a tradition that's recorded, uh, and uh, some explain that this is the fast of the ninth of Teves. It is the yard site of Shimon, Shimon Kippa. Okay? So that's kind of a wild uh, two Christian reasons why why Sadiq fasted on the ninth of days. Yeah. I don't know anyone that does. I don't know. It was a very very rare fast, even in the time of Chazal. So I don't think anyone does it does it today. Okay. Right. So that's just something was such a such a wild thing. I wanted to to share it with you. It is the secret of the fast of the ninth of 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 Tevis. Okay. Um, the other thing, of course, is given the fact that the tenth of Teves, according to some Makoros, is a commemoration of Mechiras Yosef, and Mechiras Yosef is all about sinaschina, hatred. So certainly, this is a fast in particular. We should think th- think about unity, togetherness, and I've I've said before already that uh, if you remember, if you remember the news in Israel before October 7th, before this whole war began, how much machlokas there was in Eretz Yisrael. Judicial reform, I mean, the country was being torn apart. And so much sinaschinam, and people were saying that the country will not survive. They didn't know what was coming. Something much worse came, but based on all these political issues. And if there's any silver lining, if there's any bracha in the difficulties that we're facing, it's that, Baruch Hashem, there's been a tremendous achdus in Am Yisrael. You know how many soldiers who are not religious want tzitzis and even tefillin. Uh, in a way, like everybody's becoming Chabad in Israel, right? Chabad was always, always pushing for, for, for decades. 
through Shlichas, the, they were pushing tefillin, tefillin, tefillin. Now we've all become Chabad, right? We're all looking, this is tefillin, and we're all trying to help the Chayolim uh, do this. Again, the Rebbe saw, saw all of this in the future. He saw this all ahead of time, that indeed there would come a time in which this would be such a widespread demand. So in, in many, many ways, within the tzara, within the adversity, we see tremendous goodness, tremendous beauty, and that should be a big suchus for Klal Yisrael. The big thing that you need to be scared about is if Bezras Hashem, the war would end tomorrow, everything would be great, are we going to go back to the old ways? Are we going to go back to the old ways? Uh, okay, let's go back to fighting. Now everything's back to normal. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. That's why we need Mashiach. Uh, because we're like an elastic band sometimes. You know, you, you stretch an elastic band, then you let go. It just goes back to where it was. Like nothing, nothing really changes, right? So without Mashiach, it's very, very difficult to keep the changes per, uh, permanent. But you know, Bezos Hashem, we got to do uh, the best that we can. Okay. So anyway, in the unit that we're discussing, back to our regular topic, We've been discussing marriage, and we've been discussing a lot of the ins and outs, who can marry, who cannot marry, uh, who is us or not. Now I want to talk about the actual marriage ceremony itself, just to be sure that people understand it. And here, what's very, very important is that uh, biblical and rabbinic Hebrew is not always the same as modern Hebrew. So a word that modern Hebrew gives a certain meaning is not the meaning of the term in the Torah or in Chazal or in the Gemara. A very good example of this is the word Erusin. Erusin in modern Hebrew means engagement. So when somebody gets engaged and they have a party, a vort, it used to be the Yiddish vort, Tanoim, they have their different names, but in Israel they call it Erusin. We're having an Erusin, which basically means an engagement party. That is not what the Torah means when it talks about arusa. Rather, in the time of the Torah and even in the time of the Chachamim, the Jewish marriage ceremony comprised two different parts that were actually separated, amazingly enough, by a whole year. Part one was called Erusin, and the woman is called an arusa. Part two was called Nisuin, and the woman was called a Nesua, and they were separated by a year. Erusin is what we would call the ring ceremony. A man gives a woman an object of value. It doesn't have to be a ring, by the way. A man gives a woman something of value and declares with her consent Behold, you are sanctified to me with this object in accordance with the laws of Moshe and Israel. Now, the minog is, we give a ring, and I'll talk about why that's so, but according to the halacha, you just have to give her something. A man has to give a woman something that is worth a pruta. A pruta is like a penny. It's technically not a penny, but basically, you could... I'm sorry, I say you, I'm speaking from a male perspective, forgive me, but um, the man can give the woman a candy, a lollipop, uh, a penny, uh, a a piece of gum, and say, I'm marrying you with this piece of gum. Now, she can say no, 
course she can say no. But if she says, she doesn't have to say yes, but if she accepts it with that declaration, she is technically a married woman, provided there are witnesses. There are witnesses. So, erusin is simply the giving of an object of value, minimum value, to the woman. So, number one, there's the giving. Number two, there is the declaration, which can be in English too. You are married to me in accordance with the laws of Moshe and Israel. And number three, that is done in front of witnesses. Now, the witnesses, there are many halachos here. The witnesses have to be men. They have to be Jewish. They have to be above bar mitzvah. They cannot be related to the chassan or the kala or to each other. And they have to be halachically observant. But you need a certain number? Two. And you need two of them. Okay? So, again, erisin is giving object of value. Doesn't have to be a ring. I'll get to why the minute became a ring. Declaration in front of the two witnesses who have to meet certain halachic standards. When that is done, the woman is called arusa. What you've done is erusin, and another word for erusin is kiddushin. Kiddushin is erusin. Now, in the time of the Gemara, and we'll have to figure out why this was so, the marriage was not consummated at that point. She was a married woman. If she committed adultery, she could get the death penalty. But she actually lived with her parents, stayed at home for a whole year. The marriage was not consummated till a year later. I'll explain why that was so. Now, a year later, or if they both agree earlier, but, but, but the maximum, a year later, we have stage number two that is called Nisuin. In Nisuin, the following things happened. Number one, a kasuva had to be drawn up which provides for protection in the event of death or divorce. That's a ketubah. So Erison didn't have ketubah. Ketubah belongs to Nisuin. Number two, seven brachos were recited. So sheva brachos were not connected to Erison. Sheva brachos are connected to Nisuin. And number three, the marriage now is consummated but the way it works is the consummation is a symbolic consummation by husband and wife going into a private room and having a meal together. This is what we call the yichud. You say yichud is seclusion. Now, keep in mind how all the things you see at a Jewish wedding actually occurred, they were separated, they occurred a year apart. Meaning, if you would just be at an Erison, all you would see is the giving of the ring, the declaration, in front of witnesses. In fact, typically they didn't even, they didn't even make a party at Erison. So Erison is actually, Erison resembles an engagement. You know, it actually is true, but it's much more than an engagement. Erison is actually a marriage that's not yet going to be consummated. The other thing to understand is, Sheva brachos 
are not the end of a ceremony. Sheva Brachos is the beginning of part two, the beginning of Nesuin. Kesuva, Sheva Brachos, and what is called Yichud. Yichud is what we'll call symbolic consummation. Now, what is the halachic status of Arusa versus Nesua? So let me point out. An Arusa is a married woman. If she commits adultery, she could get the death penalty if there's requisite warnings. But because the marriage has not yet been consummated, the husband is not obligated to support her. The support obligation is still on her father or on herself if she's old enough. Number two, the husband does not have inheritance rights. If she dies, the husband does not inherit her estate. Number three, um, if the husband is a Kohen and God forbid she dies as an Arusa, he cannot become impure for her funeral because a Kohen cannot become impure unless it's a relative and the wife has to be a full wife in the Sua. And vis-a-vis vows, right, the halacha is a husband can nullify his wife's vows, but if she's an Arusa, you need the father and the husband. The husband cannot do it alone. Right? So it's kind of a very odd status that she is his wife, but not completely his wife, and it's only with Nisuin that she becomes completely his wife. After Nisuin, the Kasuva becomes activated. After Nisuin, he can annul her vows. After Nisuin, he is obligated to support her. And after Nisuin, uh, he inherits her property when she, if God forbid, she dies. Yeah. But what's the purpose of having Okay, so let's ask ourselves, well, I'll, I'll address it, very good question, but let me just first talk about this. Uh, obviously, we don't do it this way today. Obviously, if you go to a chasana, you're going to see the ring ceremony, which is Erison, and then right afterwards, you're going to see here the kasuva, and you're going to uh, hear Sheva Brachos, and then there's going to be Yichud. So we do Erison and Nesuin at the same time. If you want to be pedantic, the woman is an Arusa. Well, it depends how long you're under the chuppah. A woman is an Arusa for around 15 minutes instead of a year. She's an Arusa from the time she receives the ring till the time she goes into the Yichud room. So she is an Arusa for a short time, but it's not a year. What we do in modern times is we combine two different ceremonies that used to be a year apart, and we do them the same time. So first of all, when did that change happen? Meaning when, I mean, even in the, in the Chumash these were separated, in the Gemara they were separated. So when did they come together? So it came together more or less, they, they, some people credit it to Rashi, that Rashi lived in France in the 1100s, late, oh, actually 1000s 11th century rather, uh, yeah, the late 1000s, the late 1000s, late 11th century, and Rashi felt that the practice of separating Erison and Nesuin was conducive to a lot of immorality. Number one, it was very hard on 
a man and a woman to be married and not be able to consummate their marriage. And as a result, either people were committing adultery or they were with each other, but that was not proper because they didn't do Nisuin yet. So Rashi says in order to eliminate that difficulty, he was masaking for his community. It then spread that we unify Arison and Nisuin in a single marriage, which you're allowed to do, because remember, let, let me point out, even when they waited a year, that didn't mean you had to wait a year. It meant that you were permitted to wait up to a year. So there was nothing wrong with doing it faster, except the custom was people would often wait a year. Rashi said, better not to wait a year. Now, your question is a very good question, and that is, why on earth did they have this arrangement to begin with? It is a bit of a mystery, but the, the main reason seems to be economic, and that is, in those days, women had to come up with dowries. Women had to come up with assets they would bring into a marriage. So the woman was given one year to kind of collect all of the property and assets that she was expected to bring into the marriage, and therefore the husband had the right to delay consummation for up to a year, or the wife could... It goes both ways as well. If the husbands had dowry obligations, the wife could say up to a, up to a year as well. So it seems to have been an economic arrangement. Uh, but as I say, today we don't have that at all. But it is important to understand that the Jewish marriage ceremony is comprised of two halves that used to be separated by a year, Erusin and Nisuin. So now... I'm going to go over the ceremony. I'm not going to look at the... I'll, I'll go over the preliminaries later because those are minhagim. So I'm not going to go over... I first want to go over the halachic ceremony. Then I'll go over the minhagim like badekin and things that came earlier than that. Chasen and Kala are under the chuppah. Okay, I'm not going to talk about walking around seven times. That's a minhag. Under the chuppah. So, Chasan has two witnesses. The two witnesses, once again, have to be men. They have to be bar mitzvah. They cannot be related to the chasna or the kala or to each other. They have to be halachically observant. By the way, that could sometimes be tricky uh, because in some circles, if they have an iPhone, they may be uh, not kosher witnesses because they're considered sinners. So the definition of who is not a sinner, it depends on the community, uh, as it were. But let's assume, just for simplicity, they are Shomer Shabbos. Now, there is a rabbi who's in charge of marrying them, and that rabbi has a title. He is called Misader Kedushin, the arranger or the organizer of the marriage. Now, let me point out, halachically, he is there to supervise, meaning it's not like uh, Christianity where the priest marries you. If you, go, if you remember, the way I described Arison, I didn't describe any rabbi having to be there. The chassan gives the kala something of value and makes a declaration in front of witnesses. They are married. In fact, every year, by the way, this is a problem in co-educational uh, high schools. You know, for some reason, uh, in modern Orthodox places, you know, they learn about, oh, you give the woman a piece of gum and you say, you behold it. Right. So, so, so a kid will go over, a boy will go over to a girl and during recess as a joke and say, you know, throw her a, a penny and say, 
Hey, Harim, you guys are married to me as much as well. You guys are my witnesses. Right? Well, you should know that there's all sorts of shyness. Does the woman have to cover her hair? Does she need a get? <laughs> you know, all of these uh, marriages. So the point is, marriages, the role of a rabbi in a marriage is very, very different than the role of a priest in a Christian marriage. A priest, Lahabdil, makes the marriage. Without the priest, there is no marriage. That's not true in halacha. In halacha, it's the chasen and the kala that make the marriage. The rabbi is there to be sure that everything is done right. In other words, the rabbi is not effecting the marriage. The rabbi is supervising the marriage. That is why the title of the rabbi, whoever you get, is misader kedushin. He organizes the marriage. Okay? So, so under the chuppah, you're going to see, besides all the parents who walk down, again, those are minhagim, you're going to have the chasan, the kala, the rabbi, that's misader kedushin, and the two witnesses. Now, even though Erson only requires the giving of the object and the declaration, the Chachamim did enact that certain brachos should be recited, like, like all mitzvahs. So the rabbi will recite on behalf of the chasen and the kama, like he's making kiddush for them. He'll recite two brachos. The first bracha is a bracha on wine, berei priyagafen, because similar to Kiddush, when you sanctify Shabbos, you say it over wine. When we sanctify the marriage that we're going to do, we say, we say it over wine, we praise Hashem over wine. And then there's a second bracha, which is the bracha on the mitzvah of getting married. Again, the rabbi is saying it for them, but technically they could say it themselves. And that simply says, bracha to Hashem, blessed you God, asher you have sanctified us with your commandments. Vitsivano alarayos, you have commanded us against improper sexual relations. And you have forbidden us to be with Arusos until we have Nasuin. And Baruch Hashem, blessed are you God who sanctifies the nation of Israel with Kedushin. Two brachos. After those two brachos, the chasan drinks. A little bit of the wine and the kala drinks a little bit of the wine and if you've seen weddings you know that the chasen does not give it to the kala rather he gives it to her mother and her mother gives it to her etc but again that's not the erson that is the brachos over the erson the erson is the giving of the ring then the chasen declares hariyat mekudeshetli behold you are bet- uh, married to me in accordance with the laws of Moshe in Israel, he gives her the ring in front of the witnesses. The witnesses are, she is now an Arusa. She is now halachically the status of an Arusa. Now, one question, uh, given the fact that he could give her anything, he could give her a piece of gum, he could give her a candy, he can give her a lollipop, he can give her a penny. So why is the minag universally that you give a ring? I mean, everybody, you know, if you were to tell the rabbi, you know, rabbi, I want to give her uh, an iPhone. All right? I want to give her a computer. I want to give her a car. It's even better, right? You'd figure that would even be better, right? Or, if I'm really cheap, I want to give her a big pen. 
which would also good, right? So why does it have to be a ring? Why does it have to be a ring? And there's also halachos that it has to be a ring without engraving and without jewels. There are not many minhagim as to what a wedding ring is. An engagement ring, which is not part of the ceremony, you can give whatever you want. But so, so the answer basically is that there are Kabbalistic reasons for the ring. The ring, of course, is circular. And there is a concept that um, the woman encircles the man by giving him protection, holiness. She creates a home. She creates a safe space, a space where uh, the man is encircled with protection. In fact, going back to another minhag, I know I'm, I'm, I didn't want to talk about minhagim so much. I don't know what Chabad's minhag is about the kala encircling the chassan. What is the Chabad minhag? You know, Seven the, times. how many times? Seven times. Seven times. Okay, so that's the standard custom. The custom, now it's a custom, it's not a din. I mean, it would be a kosher marriage even without it. But there is an old custom that the kala walks around the chassan. Some do it three times, some do it seven times. Most do it seven times. And the concept is, once again, because the Pasuk says in Yirmiyahu, the prophet Yirmiyahu, Nekeva tisovev gever. The woman surrounds the man, goes around the man. And this connotes the idea that she creates the environment, she creates the safe place, the place where a person can escape from all of the travail of the world into a home that's filled with happiness. Yeah, this is the idea, I don't know what's that. That's filled with happiness and kedusha, and the presence of the Shekhinah. So the woman envelops the man in that way. Why seven times? Again, this is a minog, this is not the din itself. The seven times is because when the Navi Hoshea describes Hashem's relationship to Am Yisrael, Hashem uses seven terms of endearment and he describes us as his betrothed, as his arusa. The arastachli liolam, I will betroth, arusa, arastachli, I will betroth you to me forever, one expression. Arastachli betzedek, I will betroth you with righteousness, mishpat, justice, chesed, loving kindness, rachamim, mercy. So that's four expressions, that's five. The arastachli biamuna. I will betroth you to me with faithfulness, the yodat es Hashem, and you will have an intimate knowledge of God. There are seven terms of endearment. So, in the same way Hashem describes us with seven terms of endearment, the Kala is declaring to the Chassan by her walking around that she is bound to him with these seven terms of endearment. Very, very beautiful, powerful idea. Uh, and the final reason is that when the Jewish people conquered Jericho, Jericho was the very first city that we conquered in Eretz Israel. So what did we do? We walked around the city for seven days. And on Shabbos, we walked around seven times. And that collapsed the walls. The walls tumbled. So you see that Kabbalistically, encircling something causes the machitzas, the walls, to fall. So here's what the Kala is saying. When a, when a couple gets married, there are many walls between them. I mean, after all, they have different lives. They have different personalities. There are barriers between them. The Kala walking around the chasa collapses the walls of Jericho. 
and he connects them in that way. Beautiful, beautiful statement. Now that's a minna, but I'm saying is that idea of the woman encircling the man is also the reason why instead of giving a piece of gum or even a car, it has to be a ring, because a ring, once again, is a symbol of encirclement. Okay, so you see that there's a combination of halacha and minog here. Giving the ring is halachically required as an object of value, but the fact that it's a ring is a minog. It doesn't have to be a ring halachically. Okay. By the way, uh, there's a certain rigor remote that the um, that the rabbi has to go through uh, because the ring has to belong to the chassid. So if he still owes money on it, it's not kosher, and the ring has to be worth at least a penny. So you'll always find that the rabbi will say in front of the witnesses, he'll ask the chassid, "Is this your ring? Do you owe money on it?" Sometimes actually the kala buys the ring, but gives it to the chassid. He has to give it to the chassid. And then they, he always has to ask the witnesses, is this ring worth a pruta? Is this ring worth a penny? And they have to look at it and they make believe that they're studying it very carefully. Mm, I think so, I think so. It's like a formal question because the ring has to be worth a pruta or it's not kosher, uh, etc. But the giving of the ring. Now, again, the ring doesn't have to be even on her finger. I mean, technically, again, this is where customs come in. Technically, she could take it in her hand. Right? And it certainly doesn't have to be on a particular finger, but uh, these are customs that uh, it's put on the finger and um, it's, uh, you know, and it's the index finger, the ring, the ring finger of the, right, of the right hand, it should be the right hand, not the left hand, etc. So, you know, these are minhagim. Now, people ask the question, uh, is it okay if a man wears a wedding ring? Can a man wear a wedding, a wedding ring? So one thing I'll tell you for sure you cannot have you cannot have a double ring ceremony. You cannot have under the chuppah where he gives her a ring and she gives him a ring because the Jewish wedding ceremony has to be he gives something to her. So if you're creating a confusion where he gives her and she gives him, the ceremony is not valid. However, from strict halachic standpoint, once the marriage ceremony is over, if she gives him a ring, even under the chuppah, once, once the witnesses saw that he gave her the ring and that's the end of the marriage ceremony, technically there is nothing wrong with it, and even in the yichud room as well. So if you're asking me, is there a halacha against men wearing wedding rings, uh, it is not usher. It is not usher. But as you probably have gathered by common observation, including, including me, uh, generally speaking, it is not the minuk in the religious communities that much for men to wear wedding rings. Uh, it tends to be uh, women doing it. But as I say, if you're going to ask me, is there anything wrong with it, there actually is not. Uh, the only thing that is wrong is to have a double ring ceremony. That, that you're not allowed to have. Yeah. Why is it that men, even after the ceremony, like men don't wear wedding rings? Is there a reason why? Well... I, I think that it actually started from the fact that when a woman is married, she cannot marry anybody else. Under the original halacha, a man could marry. Polygamy was permitted. So if polygamy was permitted, why do I have to wear, why do I have to wear a ring that I'm married? I could, you know, it, it doesn't restrict me in any way. 
We may have been connected mm-hmm. to that. But of course, that's not a valid reason today because Ashkenazic Jews are not allowed to practice polygamy anyway. So, right. so now you could argue there's more of a reason to wear a wedding ring. Uh, but still, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to understand the reasons for, for, for the customs as they develop. Now there's a whole issue of, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the Goyim do it or the non-religious Jews do it. There, there is sometimes almost a visceral reaction. We don't want to imitate ah, okay. people who are less committed to halacha. But as I say, I mean, I, 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 I cannot... I cannot get emotionally upset about this. If a man wants to wear a wedding ring, you know, I'm not going to make any type of story. But I'm just warning you, just practically, that generally it's not done that much. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. So there, you got to be careful. The way it works is, the woman must give it to her chassan as an unconditional gift. Wow. Which actually, so she's taking a bit. She's taking a big risk there, because he gets the ring and breaks off the engagement. You know, he gets to keep the ring, right? Once it is his unconditional gift, the hope would be he would give it back to her. And then it's her wedding ring. You're 100% correct. As long as it belongs to her or her family, it is not a kosher marriage. Now, I mentioned before that a wedding band is plain. It doesn't have engraving. It doesn't have a jewel, right? You know, an engagement ring can have a diamond, but a wedding ring does not have a diamond, etc. Very, very simple band. Sometimes it's narrow, sometimes it's wide. That you're allowed that difference. But it has to be plain. So here, Chazal, the postcom give the following reason. It's not, it's not the greatest reason, but this is the reason they give. They say that a woman cannot be deceived. Even though a woman could agree to get married for a penny, etc., but if a woman thinks she's getting something more expensive, and really it's not that expensive, that is called a deception in the marriage, and the marriage is invalid. And the fear would be that when you have designs or jewels, she might be misled into thinking it's fancier than it is. And therefore, in order to avoid her being deceived as to the value of what she's getting, you give her the simplest thing, that way she doesn't get fooled in that way. Yeah. If, for example, um, a cousin designated a ring for one color, yeah. and then they engaged with both or whatever, like, can he use the same ring? Yes, he can. Until until he gave it to the kala, it's his property. So he gave, like like not not as a person, but if he gave, like. <laughs> oh, he gave, oh, gave her as a gift, you mean? No, just like. No, no. In other words, the fact that he mentally, the fact that he mentally, thought he was going to use it for for Rachel, doesn't mean he can't use it for Leah. He can use it for Leah because it's his property. He can still he can still use it. Yeah. So this depends on the this depends on customs. This does depend on customs. Meaning, engagements. Remember, engagements are, are in modern Hebrew called erson, but they are not erson. They are not halachic erson. So engagement rings uh, are halachically mutter. But here's the, the problem. The, the problem is this: there is a whole discussion in halacha about giving any gifts at all to your kala when you're just engaged 
because the fear might be any gifts. This would be rings. This would be flowers. Anything that's worth a penny that maybe you'll be making erusin because you're planning to marry her, right? I'm sorry, I keep on saying you. I mean, the man is planning to marry the woman. So according to this, some have a minuk, some do have a minuk, and it may sound cruel, that uh, the chassan gives absolutely no gifts at all to his kala while they're engaged, so it shouldn't be construed as an erusin. So according to that rule, you would not use engagement rings. However, many people are not machner in this. Uh, and they do take the position as long as it's clear that the chassan is not giving it as a marriage ceremony uh, you can do it so so, so, so in the firm world you'll see uh, among chassidim they tend not to have engagement rings but among many uh, religious people uh, they, they do have engagement rings which can have diamonds in it or whatever it is and that's going to be much right? but you, the, in other words the only reason not to do it is that it shouldn't be confused with making an erison do they have it? Chabad has engagement rings. Okay. okay. Not everyone. But well, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, a lot of Chabad people give gifts from the husband. No. Not from the husband. Not before the husband. Right, right, right. Right, right. So that's going to be... Right. That, 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 that's, no, before the wedding. No, no, that, that's going to be the technical answer, meaning right. if the gifts don't come from the chassan, then it's not going to turn into an erison. The erison requires that the gift comes from the chassan, right? So, so that would, I think that's right. So an engagement ring that's coming from the mother, even if the chassan gave the mother the money, let's say, uh, if the engagement ring comes from the mother of the chassan, that's not, that's not a problem at all. Uh, the issue would only be if it comes from the, the chassan himself. Okay, yeah. Once the ceremony is over and, and they're married, is there a particular finger that the that she wears? No, she can wear it on any, any finger, any finger. Uh, now, a little question about Matila Shadayim for a moment. This comes up a lot. You'll, you'll know this uh, soon. Uh, you know, when you wash your hands for bread, or even in the morning, so you're not supposed to have uh, rings on your finger, right? Because you're not supposed to have anything that blocks between, or go to the mikvah for that, that blocks uh, your skin from the water. Whether it's natila shadayim for bread, whether it's natila shadayim for the uh, morning, whether it's going to the mikvah, right? This is called chatzitza. You don't have any blockages between yourself, yourself and the, uh, and the water. So the question is, if you're a married woman, and you have a wedding ring, do you have to remove your wedding ring for Natila Shadaim or even going going to the mikvah? Now we know that single women absolutely have to remove their rings because typically a single woman typically does not wear a ring 24 seven. It's only a piece of jewelry. So pieces of jewelry gotta be removed. But with wedding rings, so it all depends. Uh, if a woman indeed, in fact it doesn't, have to, doesn't even have to be a wedding ring. If it's a ring, that on her own, she would never take off. She never takes it off. Usually that'd be a wedding ring, but, it, but it's Labdavka. I'm not suggesting it's a special rule about wedding rings. But th- there is a rule, a ring that on her own, she would never take off. She actually does not have to remove for Natila Shadaim, and it could even be if she doesn't have to remove it for the mikvah, although the customers don't make you remove it. But, uh, but there is this concept that anything that is intended to be a permanent connection to your body is not called a chatzitza. Mm. So uh, wedding rings do not have to be taken off if you wear them normally 24-7. Even in your, like, only that 
means that you also wear it while you're sleeping. You wear it while you're sleeping, that's correct. If you take it off while you're sleeping, then you have to remove it before Natila should die. In fact, what do they tell the story? They tell the story about a Balas Chuva that uh, she was being introduced to rituals of Judaism. So right before Hamotzi, uh, she was washing her hands, she asked the host, do you have a spare ring that I could borrow? So she said, why do you need a spare ring? She says, well, I, I want to put it on so I can take it off. I see that taking off a ring is part of the mitzvah <laughs> of the Tila Shadayim. I don't have any ring. <laughs> Give me a ring so I can take it off. <laughs> that was part of the mitzvah of the Tila Shadayim. Okay. Now, here I want you to imagine you're sitting at a chuppah. Do you realize, once again, that when the chassan put the ring on the kala's finger... That was the end of Erson. If you would be at this a thousand years ago, you'd go home right now. No meal, no party, no dancing. <laughs> right? Finished. So, see, when you're standing and you're watching, you think Sheva Brachos is like the end of a ceremony. No, Sheva Brachos is beginning of part two. So now, what happens after the giving of the ring? So there's an announcer, right? The announcer... So the next thing that happens is the kasuva is read. Somebody is called up, or you honor somebody, to read the kasuva. Now, I'm going to probably talk about next week. I want to actually go through what a kasuva actually says. You know, it's a very interesting. Occasionally, Hebrew kasuvas come with English translations. But I can tell you, the English translation has nothing to do with, the, with what the Hebrew kasuva says. So, the, the, it's not even Hebrew. The Ksuvah is not written in Hebrew. Ksuvah is written in Aramaic, Hebrew letters. But the Ksuvah is a very business-like document. It's business, contract. So I see the translation says, I promise to love and be faithful and be good. Okay, the Ksuvah is not that romantic. Uh, but the translation, they make it much more romantic. So I actually want to go through the Ksuvah. But at its simplest, the Ksuvah basically provides for a wife to be protected in the event of death or divorce. Okay. The kasuva is read publicly, etc. And the reason why the kasuva is read publicly, why does it have to be read? There's, there's no reason to read it publicly, is because it's, that's the break between Erison and Asuan, that, that since we're combining two different ceremonies that were a year apart, we have a break. And reading the ksuba is the break. Okay, again, I will discuss the ksuba more. We then begin part two, which is nesuin. Part two is the recitation of seven blessings under the chuppah. These are called sheva brachos. These are very, very beautiful blessings. And the first of those seven blessings, interestingly enough, is another cup of wine, Borei Priyagafen. Now you may ask, if 15 minutes ago the rabbi made a bracha, Borei Priyagafen, why does he have to make a Borei Priyagafen 15 minutes later? I mean, if I make a bracha on wine, that, that, you know, that covers the whole meal. The answer is that this reminds us that these used to be two ceremonies that were separated by a year. Meaning, the Erison ceremony starts with a Borei Priyagafen, 
And the Nesuin ceremony starts with the Rei Priyagavan. And each one is honored by a separate cup of wine because they used to be a year apart. So yeah, today, you could say make one bracha and it'll cover all the wine. But these are two separate ceremonies. And therefore we have a separate cup. That's why it's not even the same cup. I mean, you'll notice. Uh, there was a cup of wine over the Erisin, in which the Chasna and the Kala drank a little bit. Most of the cup wasn't even drunk. And then there's a separate cup of wine for the Nesuin, the Sheva Brachas. Now the Sheva Brachas are not Minag, they are the Halacha. The Halacha of Nesuin requires. In fact, it's interesting. A Chasna and a Kala are not allowed to touch. When, when can a Chasna and a Kala hold hands? This is very interesting. You know, they certainly can't hold hands as when they're engaged, right? That's the Yisr of Nagia. But you might figure after Erson, their husband and wife. Nope. They cannot even hold hands after Erison. It is only after Sheva Brachos. Chazal say, until the Sheva Brachos are recited, the Kala is like a Nida to her husband. So it's very interesting, you know, even a simple thing like, uh, you know, in modern circles you'll sometimes see a chassan kisses kala under the chuppah. Putting aside the issue, which I don't want to discuss right now, is that sinias to, to kiss your wife in public? I'm putting that aside. But as a matter of strict halacha, it is absolutely usher until after Shabbat So if he gives your kiss after Shabbat then we'll get into sinias issues and the like. That's a separate issue. But before Sheva Brachas, it actually, actually is forbidden. They cannot hold hands till after Sheva Brachas. Sheva Brachas is done before you go into the private room? Yes, yes. So once that's done, they could Yes, touch, they could hold they hands going to the private room. They normally may not. That, that's a question of Tzniyas. But they can hold hands to go to the Yichad room. Now, Sheva Brachas are seven Brachas, right? The first one is Rei Priyagavan. And at the end of the Sheva Brachas, once again, the Chassan and the Kala drink a little wine. Who, who recites the Sheva Brachas? So this is very interesting. Svardim and Ashkenazim have different customs. According to Svardim, one person recites all the seven Brachas. Maybe it's the rabbi who is Masada Kedushin, or maybe it's another rabbi. But one person recites them all. Among Ashkenazim, and Hasidim as well, the tendency uh, is to you want to honor as many people as you can. So usually the Sheva Brachas will be recited either by seven people or by six people. Let me explain why. Some people don't consider just making a blessing on wine enough of a kavod, so they will always combine one and two. In other words, they'll say, for example, uncle of the Kala is honored with Brachos one and two. The way Priyagafen and the next one. So some will have six brachos, so six honors. And others will actually have seven honors. Okay, so that depends. Uh, and, you know, who you honor, that's, that's for the chasen and the kala, or maybe their families to kind of decide. Uh, chasen's friends, kala's friends, chasen's rabbis, kala's rabbi. Okay, you know, again, th- th- there's no halacha about who you honor, but this is something you, you know, you work out. And the like, often in Israel, I always wonder how it, how it feels to be second choice. Those little, you know, uh, they'll call up somebody, and the somebody's not there. So they'll say, "Okay, you know, you do it." Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So, somehow, 
it's a little more is offensive. Is it usually one person here, or is it one person? Or no, no, no. Most, most, in, well, well Sephardim do one person, but Ashkenazim... But I'm saying in Israel, would you normally would do... Uh, no, uh, in Israel, the same thing. Uh, in other words, Sephardim have one, Ashkenazim have six or seven. Uh, in fact, sometimes, sometimes they got to go like two or three people down the road, you know, whatever. Uh. <laughs> like, he's not here, he's not here, he's not here, <laughs> you know, and they get, uh, they get the person. So these are the Sheva Brachos, and they are required, and they are the first act of Nesuin. So it's not the end, it looks like the end of the Chuppah, it's the beginning of part two. Actually, well, maybe the Ksuva was the first thing to do. The Ksuva, the Sheva Brachos, then we're going to have the, uh, we're going to have the Yichud. Now, after Sheva Brachos, she is still in Arusa, because you haven't had the Yichud yet, but... At this point, physical contact is permitted. They can hold hands. Again, typically they, they, they won't do it, but, but, but again, that depends on the... But halakhically, it would be, would be permitted. At this point, we now have minhagim. So there's a mixture of minhagim. And that is, a glass is broken. Uh, and the basis of breaking the glass is a gemara in brachos. It is from the gemara. It's a very ancient custom. And it mentions that one time there was a wedding in which people were behaving a little out of hand. They were a little wild. So one of the rabbis took a very expensive glass and he smashed it against the wall. And as soon as he smashed it against the wall, everybody became quiet. And he basically said, we don't have a Beis HaMikdash. We're mourning the Shekhinah. Even at our weddings, we don't necessarily... Uh, go all the way out. Now, keep in mind that the Gemara didn't say it was a halacha. The Gemara, the Gemara records one person doing this. But because of that one person, it became the minah that we break a glass to remember the korban base, hamikdash, and the golos of Hashem, and the pain of the Shekhinah. Now, when do you break glass? So actually, let, let, me, let me point out, I, I, I misspoke for a moment here. The minhag in most of the world is we break the glass after Sheva brachas. As I just said, when the last bracha is recited, Hassan steps on the glass and the like. However, in Eretz Yisrael, many have a different minhag. Many have a minhag to break it before Sheva brachas, after the ksuv is broken. I'm sorry, after the ring ceremony, after the ersa, before the ksuv is read, he breaks the glass all the way back there. So you'll see different minhagim about when the glass is broken. In addition, when the glass is broken, both the chasen and the kawa, if they're able to, these are minhagim. Again, I'm, I want to differentiate between the absolute din and the minhag. The minhag is they recite the pasuk, from Tehillim, if I forget you, Yerushalayim, Tishkach Imini, may I forget the use of my right hands, Tidbak Lashoni Lachiki, may my tongue cleave to my palate, Imlo Eskarechi, if I don't remember you, Imlo Alas Yerushalayim, Arosh Simchasi, if I don't put Yerushalayim above my greatest joy. And uh, the band will play, you know, the tune for Imeshkachech. Or, or whatever it is. Now, the way the minog works today, see, there's a certain benefit to the Israeli minog. Let me explain why. 
this is a moment of reflection. It's a, supposed to be a somber moment. We think about the Chorban, we think about the Galas. But you know how it works. When the glass is broken after Sheva Brachas, it's like, it's like a baseball game. Yay, everybody starts going crazy. <laughs> now, that, that's, against, I mean, that's against the mood of that moment, you see? So when they do it in Eretz Yisrael and they break the glass before the Ksuba, people are not singing and dancing yet, you see? So that, in a sense, it makes, it makes in terms of mood, in terms of mood, it actually makes a lot of sense. But as I say, the prevailing minute outside of Eretz Yisrael is that we break the glass by, uh, in, uh, by after, after Sheva Brachas. Okay? So that's a minute, though. That is not part of the Nesuin. The Nesuin was the Kesuva. The Nesuin was the Sheva Brachas. And then we have the final part of the Nesuin, which, by the way, you, you need Adam for the Nesuin as well, and that is called Yichud. Now, what is Yichud? Yichud, uh, yichud is seclusion. And yichud is what we might call symbolic consummation. It is not actual consummation, obviously. And that is, the chasan brings the kala, literally, into his home, and they eat together. So the ideal of true yichud would be the chasan brings him to his house, to his home, to his apartment. That would be the real yichud. Today, we, we, we have a room that's designated for their use. But halachically, it's very important that the chassan, well, he's not going to be the owner of the room unless he owns the building, but that he rents the room. He actually pays some money. So the room is his room because it's not just being alone. It's bringing him into his home. Right, the essence is bringing him, bringing her into his home, and they eat together because they were fasting. But even without the fast, even if they weren't fasting, they eat together, and they stay for a certain amount of time, typically between five and nine minutes, depending which rabbi <laughs> rabbi you ask. And the the significance of that is you have to have witnesses because that's part of, of standing outside the room to be sure that nobody goes in because it is the privacy and intimacy that is considered to be the consummation of the marriage, and then she's a nesua. She is now fully married in terms of inheritance rights. Uh, so if she wants to kill her husband, uh, she should wait until after the yichud room, then she gets to, then she gets to inherit his... So or, or, or vice versa, vice versa. You know, if his wife is rich, you know, whatever it is, uh, wait until... Now, as a practical matter, let, let me just point out, as a practical matter, as a practical matter, the chassan and the kala usually stay in the yichud room more than nine minutes. They're getting to know each other. They often exchange gifts. They often exchange gifts. You may give them a talis, you may give them whatever, different types of gifts. These are minhagim. These are not halachos. And they want to get to know each other, spend time with each other. Uh, so that's why you'll notice that um, from the time they go into Yichud till the time they come into the wedding meal, maybe an hour. Part of that is the Chedera Yichud. Part of it is photographers. Photographers control the wedding schedules, uh, for sure. 
uh, but that's why it takes so long. I mean, why does it take so long for a chassan kala to join the, the wedding uh, meal? Uh, if Yichud is only nine minutes, the answer is that they stay longer and then there's a photographer. Now, another interesting thing. Some say that the halachic obligation that a married woman must cover her hair only applies to a nesua and not to an arusa, which is very, very, very interesting. So that would mean that a woman does not have to cover her hair until she comes out of the yichud room. Mm -hmm. Because until she's in the yichud room, even after she was given a ring, she is only an arusa. And even with Sheva Bracha, she's half a Nesua, but Nesua is that right? So that would be the basis. There are three opinions. Some say a married woman must cover her hair as soon as she's an Arusa, which means practically she has to cover her hair before she goes down to the Chuppah because she's going to become an Arusa under the Chuppah. Some say she doesn't have to have her hair covered till she leaves the Yichud room because she's a Nesua. There's a third view that actually says even a Nesua does not have to cover her hair until the marriage is physically consummated, which actually means, according to that third view, her hair could be uncovered even during the wedding and just the next morning when she comes down or whatever, her hair has to be covered. So, there are, so I'm not giving you a psaac, I'm just telling you there are three different shitos as to when a married woman must have her hair covered in public. Some say by the time of erison, which practically means she has to walk down the aisle with a with a tech, with a shetel or whatever. Uh, some say after the yichud room because that's when she's a nesua, and some say after actual consummation, which would mean not until the next morning or so. Yeah. If she needs, if she does cover her hair after the um, yichud room, yeah. Then once. They come out together, but what if she needs help covering her hair? Like for the first time, she's putting either a, a shade well, on. Well, or well, 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 remember, I mean, remember, there's no, there's no problem with women, with women helping women cover hair. I mean, no, I'm saying, but he has to come out of the room first. Like, does she have a? A, a oh, no, no, so, so, so kind of no, 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 I'm going to talk about this. I mean, I mean you have to understand, Me'iker Hadin, putting aside Hasidus and Kabbalah, there is no issue for a man to see his wife's uncovered hair. Right, but if another woman wants to come into the room to help her, could she go into that room? Yeah. Or does she, he have to well, go, well, does she have to go into another room? Because that's Well, well, well no, nobody can come in until you've had your nine minutes. Right. After the nine minutes, then another so woman could come, come in and, in and help. And, help. Oh, and even if he sees his wife's uncovered hair, that is not, I mean, some okay. people are going to be machmer because of Kabbalah, but according to Halacha, a husband is allowed to see okay. his wife's uncovered hair. So that wouldn't be a problem, okay? Alrighty. Uh, so again, I hope uh, this will be halacha lemaiser for you uh, uh, in the relatively near future. But again, we'll continue discussing some of the halachas uh, next week. Thank you. Thank you.